Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Conscious Vibe Podcast, where we elevate intellect through conscious dialogue while exploring race, politics, business, and culture. I'm Dr. Daryl L. Jones, and I'm Charles D. Mitchell. Welcome to the Conscious Vibe, DJ. Charles. Good dinner last night. It was, actually. It was a really, really good, good dinner. It was fun, right? I made my own salad, but that's okay. Well, you know, that's how it works sometimes when you just uh, are a staple at the restaurant where you go to <laughs> yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Where'd you guys me. go? Uh, we went to House. House Brasserie. Oh, yeah. That's one of your favorites, if I remember. Yeah, it see. is correct. It is yeah. correct. And uh, speaking of that voice that you just heard, uh, good friend of mine, Scott Barker. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Glad to have you. Scott's uh, what I call a, I wouldn't say a serial entrepreneur, but someone who has a lot of experience in running businesses, growing businesses, scaling businesses, in the title business, Greystone Title, mm-hmm. Copper State Farms, in the cannabis, cannabis business, which we will talk about a little bit later. But um, Scott, tell us a little bit about your early background, childhood, how, where you grew up. Um, pivotal moments in your early life and then take us to sort of your your early adult and then to like where we are right now with you in terms of what life looks like. Hmm. Um, sure. Going back, I am the product of a, a broken family and I think that led to a lot of independence and uh, uh, working my way through public uh, school, through high school, I decided as soon as I could get out the door and head out that I would do that. And so at the end of high school, I uh, took off to California to go do uh, uh, college and the rest of my education. And after college, I decided to break out and also work overseas and then to work in New York. Uh, I studied as an engineer, but I ended up doing some very different things after that. And I think uh, having bounced around through different big and smaller companies together with my kind of very independent uh, upbringing. Uh, When you're left on your own and you fend for yourself, I think you can mature a little bit faster than others who might have been coddled or are in a much more protected environment. And I was not in a protected environment. In some ways, it was a hostile uh, environment. So I think as a result of that combination, it leads to making strides and branching out. Sometimes that results in a failure and sometimes it results in making, you know, things work pretty well. So uh, I've gotten a little bit better at that. And in some of the later things that I've uh, chosen to to try on, I think they've worked out better than some of the earlier ventures that I was involved in. So let's go back though. I mean, I know that uh, high school was here in Arizona. Is yeah. That correct. Right. right. Yep. And I uh, understand you are a track and field athlete, mm-hmm. legend. <laughs> I, I would be careful about athlete and definitely not use legend. But I, uh, I did, I did, uh, I did do some running. Yeah, in college. That's yeah, and then where did you attend college? I attended Stanford. And I also we had this conversation the other day. Four minute, twenty one second mile. That's right. That's right. Again, not good well, enough no. to be either a legend or a properly counted <laughs> athlete, you know, because there are certainly far better times in uh, collegiate sports. Uh, what did you study uh, at Stanford? Uh, engineering, engineering, no. and engineering management. It's a it's a program with uh, with the business school and the engineering school to try to make more rounded number cruncher guys. So uh, that was my spot. And then overseas, what what was that like? Tell, tell us about. The I experience. did a fellowship overseas, arranged through school, and. Um, uh, they place you with folks. So I was kind of a shoeshine boy for the uh, uh, CEO of uh, IBM Europe, Middle East, Africa. Uh, so that continued for about two years. And then I came back stateside and continued with them uh, for a period of time. And you said need some time in New York, right? I did. I worked for uh, Goldman Sachs in New York and did mergers and acquisitions, leverage buyouts uh, for them for a few years also. What was I that like? Out of my own. That that is a that is a meat I, grinder. I, I've spot. always you know I've always wondered what. I remember in graduate business school as well, having classmates that went off to go work for you know the big, you know investment banking firms. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Goldman being one of them. Um, Donaldson, uh, Lufkin, generally exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, so was always curious about what that was like in terms of. You know, the day to day, I always remember hearing about the late hours and like just the crazy lifestyle. How was that? 
They, they, they work you to death <laughs> or near that. Uh, so, you know, you, you find out how hard you can work in a concentrated way. And, and I think, you know, when you immerse yourself uh, with somebody who has to have something done that's maybe financially complicated or complicated in other ways, but you're working around very focused folks who are high achievers and uh, it makes you work stronger and a little bit harder. So I would say for somebody interested in doing that kind of work, you know, you, there's a lot of good places to do that, but uh, it changes you, you know, it and, makes your team oriented. And what too. do you take away from that? Because I, again, I, I know that to your point about the grinder, the hours, there's got to be a lot of fortitude in terms of like, I have to figure out a way to to get through this, to stick through this, to get something on the other side. What what, what was that for you? Well, I guess a good analogy is: Did you practice law at a big firm? I did, Charles. Okay, so you know, I don't know what the billables were, but you had to do what two thousand hours or two thousand like hours. Year. Well, early on it was eighteen fifty, then they pushed it up to two thousand, and then eventually twenty one hundred. And did that change you when you're on a path and that was maybe you wanted the oh, ring? Well, it absolutely <laughs> changed me. Yeah. I would say the same is true there. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a lot of interviews and so you feel pretty lucky. And then, then they take all that sense of confidence and they immediately humble you. They put it to work and you set forth on kind of an endurance path. Uh, deal. And, you know, for those that uh, persist and make it to the other side, maybe get a partner ring. I don't know if you stayed through partner in a law firm no. or not. I think I learned um, early on. I think it's probably a similar trajectory in terms of you learn to appreciate the work, but you also realize that you are probably better suited for another path. You know, growing up out West and being from Arizona, uh, also New York is a great young person's town for being able to do a lot of work mm-hmm. and then being able to go out pretty late. But there's not a lot of trees or enjoyment of life or balance, too. So after enough, you know, you get through the grinder and you get stuffed into it and then you get pushed out the other side. You're doing some great things. There's no doubt about that, too. But there are pieces of life that are also missing there. Eventually, you know, you leave it. Well, for me, the decision was to come back. I was an illness in the family with uh, my grandmother, and uh, I decided to come back and be closer to closer to family. So. So you come back to Arizona, get closer to family. Um, what is the next piece of the puzzle? Um, at that point in time, I had made an offer. I told you I, I worked for uh, IBM over in Europe, and they were deciding around the world to unload their manufacturing facilities. And uh, I had stayed in touch with uh, some of those folks. And with um, General Electric and uh, with a fund out of Australia, I ended up uh, being part of a buying group and was chairman of um, a, a purchase of IBM Australia. We renamed that to be Blue Gum. And uh, I did it again with a company called Alcatel. And we put those two operations together and manufactured. Um, we were the largest contract manufacturer in uh, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, um, for parts of Asia. We supplied all the stuff under the IBM brand. Alcatel, HP, Lucent, um, good-sized company. Had about 1,200 guys. So did that, grew it, sold it to a global company and came back to Arizona. And then on to the next thing, which was actually a television production of live event sports here in town with the Suns and the Diamondbacks and then also with some national contracts uh, for the PGA Tour and uh, for college basketball, obviously the Final Four and uh, that sort of thing. I did that for a while, and that was <laughs> that did not uh, turn out the way everybody hoped. Um, but I was uh, I, I made a big investment and had a much smaller investment at the end of that one. So, <laughs> that, <laughs> that happens to all of us at some point. Deal. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, to your point earlier, not later. Um, that's interesting. Uh, sounds like there's a little intersection in some of those things. I know that. DJ had a long, successful career at Nike. Mm. Um, I spent some time at the PGA Tour as an intern when I was in law school. Oh. Um, so so that period in sports, obviously, is having the opportunity at least to be in that realm. Obviously, you did that a lot longer than the two of us, it looks like. Um, had to be really interesting. It's a lot of fun. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of excitement. There's a lot of technology. We ended up with a, uh, an Emmy award, uh, out of it and, um, a tremendous financial loss. So you take all that together and you focus on great memories and don't add up the bank account, you know, but, uh, I, I would say 
uh, we did a lot of great sports and some musical events too. You know, we were the first uh, live uh, high definition uh, broadcast that was done here. It was at uh, Flushing Meadows for the uh, U.S. Open tennis, mm-hmm. and then we did the NBA All Star. Uh, was pretty on early, early on to do an HD broadcast. And back in in those days, you had to spend twice the money for these fancy trucks to go make that live event production mm-hmm. because not everybody's television was HD. So you had to actually do a simulcast of both standard definition and high definition at the same time. So it's pretty complicated. You had to have double the number of guys out to do a live event. So if you're covering a game or if you're covering even worse golf, you've got to do a simulcast of both of those. It gets to be pretty rough. And pretty expensive. And pretty expensive. Yeah. So then what was the part of that formula that didn't work? That led to it being a bad investment. <laughs> it was actually all comes down to one particular day in golf at the PGA Championship where the primary producer and it's raining. Uh, what is this fancy course in Milwaukee? I forget it. I blocked it out of my mind because it was just so rough. Uh, anyway, um, not a lot of trees. Uh, the holes had kind of a steep elevation that would come up mm-hmm. and it's raining. It's pouring out there. And we uh, implemented the first fiber optic way to fan out across the course to reduce the amount of time it would take to go get a high-definition camera on a hole and be able to cover a player and do that with mobile. The trouble was that because it was so slippery, people are grabbing onto the fiber optic cable, which is made out of glass. And since it's made out of glass, it breaks. So they're trying to get up to see the players. They're pulling on this. And the next thing you know, I get a call from uh, the president of CBS Sports about day two or day three before the finals says, you better bring enough people out here to fix this or a uh, contract is going to get wrapped up. I had negotiated a five-year contract to cover all the PGA tour for the network. And uh, anyway, we had to, we had to um, pull the truck and this runs about, I don't know, 15, $20 million to fix a truck. But worse than that, when the contract um, didn't work out, a competitor who I took the contract from said, well, we're here to help, which they were here to hurt. And <laughs> what they did instead was they said, we think that, uh, you know, we've had a conversation with your bank and they don't like the fact you don't have a contract. So all the debt got accelerated within a week wow, associated God. with all the trucks. And so there was about 65 million that had come due in one week. What are you going to do with that? So we, we had to do a restructure and uh, I think you can kind of, Gather from there, yeah. we picked yeah. up some, yeah. some pieces and uh, and moved on from there. Wow, you, you know it, it's interesting because I think sometimes the great idea perhaps is a little bit ahead of its time mm-hmm. because I'm sure you fast forward five years later, you probably have better tools and and you have better means to deliver that in a much more efficient and productive way. Where if one, you're not, you're not, you're not, the expense piece of that isn't such a onerous task, right? Yeah, I think you can reduce it to, uh, you don't take something like a television set that used to cost you, I don't know, $10,000 for a big fancy plasma TV. It's super heavy if you remember when they came out. I do. Now you can go to Costco and it's a whole different story. The same is true for high definition gear. Um, it costs a ton of money. But now it's better. It's in a smaller compact form. It's less expensive to hook up, et cetera. So don't put a lot of leverage on a business that has built-in obsolescence, like HD equipment, that kind of stuff. So, you know, they love you until two years later, your stuff seems a little bit old. And they go, if you could just upgrade all that again, we'd love to continue this contract. And you can say, well, I haven't quite amortized the $20 million yet. If you want to pay me more to do that next set of events, that'd be terrific. They go, wow, we you just get that equipment, we'll talk about a change in price. So that kind of interaction leads to trouble. So I think that's a great lesson for anybody trying uh, to understand what to do with leverage and then to add on top of that other fundamental risk to a business, mm-hmm. you probably just don't match those up. It just doesn't always work out very well. So, so Scott, you, go ahead. Okay. You know, Charles and I were at dinner last night. One of the things we spent a lot of time talking about was how the um, educational system does or doesn't prepare us for entrepreneurship or for work. Mm-hmm. How well do you think Stanford prepared you for what was facing you and everything you achieved and even some of the failures in your business life? Well, I, I think that um, education can be what you make of it. A place like that, the network of folks that you run mm-hmm. across that can create a different perspective 
Many of them are um, coming from a place of privilege, and many of them are there because they've got some, you know, sheer intellectual strength, but they don't come from a place of privilege. And I think one of the greater things about um, uh, the way my uh, the way Stanford, you know, recruits uh, folks and, and fills that class is I think you just get a a great blend of everybody who has seen a lot together with folks that haven't seen much at all, but really have a lot to say. And what I felt out of that was it was a great chance to go try on a new pair of shoes and maybe a new kind of job that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. That part's quite nice. But, you know, what you study and how you push a button on a calculator probably didn't help me for most of what you run into just after you get out of school. Um, I would say that's probably true for a number of people. But then there are some who learn a rote task and then go decide that's exactly what they want to pursue. Mm-hmm. And they figure out how to do that again. And I'm sure that's also a wonderful way to take from, uh, you know, your education, something you can absolutely apply. But I've just run all over the place uh, a few times. And, and what you find is all of it together can be helpful, but none of it in particular is exactly the thing that you need to have had the best education. I think that it's a combination of who you've run across, how you interact with them, and then in that interaction, how you apply yourself in a new challenge that allows you to learn and then to help others learn. And, you know, team building can come from that in a good way, too. So um, that's my sense of it. So you mentioned coming from a, a, a broken home. And, and I would imagine, you tell us, what you're sort of what you're describing, too, is this level of emotional intelligence that's required to establish these networks and realize how important that they are. Where do you think you developed that sense of importance? I don't know if it was forethought as much as uh, just seeing after the fact that you have really gotten to know somebody who turns out to also excel. And, you know, two people can really help each other or two or three or five or 10, whatever it might be. And um, I'm not sure, at least for myself, going into it, that what you say is, well, I've got to get to know everybody and then I'm going to find out who might help me the most and I'm going to pick a path from there. Really what happens is you find some people that interest you a lot mm-hmm. and you spend more time with them and you find out what's on their mind. How do they think about education or what they want to do with it or where it makes them think they want to go? And those things in a group setting where everybody's, as I say, all come from different places, it leads to a more a complicated, a more complicated perspective that I, I, I believe changes you, you know, and it makes you see things that you might not otherwise see if what happened is if I grew up and stayed in, in Phoenix or, or any other place and was just around people that I grew up with and spent time with just them and we all talk kind of the same thing over the years about what are you going to do that's next, I probably would have come to a different answer Absolutely. than that that I came with, uh, you know, leaving, going to a different state and then being around people who come from different countries, different spots, different walks of life, et cetera. I think that's irreplaceable. And that happens everywhere. It doesn't need to be at, you know, obviously Stanford's a fine place, but I think that happens everywhere. Stanford is probably in the top 5% of that dynamic. Hmm. And I, I think Stanford, you were a student athlete, you said, right? Hmm. There, right? Hmm. Um, I think from the outside looking in, at least, there's something about being this whole person and not just being about the books or not just being about sports, which sometimes you have to make that decision at other really great schools. Mm-hmm. Stanford, to me, has always had this reputation of, no, we can excel in both. And, and you're building this full dimensional person. And, you know, I just think what you're describing is is amazing because we spend a lot of time talking about you know, you come from certain cultures and you you make it to a good school. Especially coming from where I came from, sometimes it's just enough to feel like you made it there. That second part of networking and, you know, trying to establish, hey, I'm going to, that's the last thing on your mind. It's like, I just got to stay here. Like, right? I just got to make it. I got to get the grades to keep. What you're talking about is this whole next level of, that I think is really, really interesting. And deserving of a lot more flushing out. Um, and we talked about it last we night. We talked about it last night. And I think we talked about it. One context is, um, and I, I've heard this term several times, literally just this week, uh, imposter syndrome. Mm. 
What's that mean? Meaning you can take it from either, I don't know, as either sort of like an, from an ethnic perspective or just from a perspective of just landing in a place where you don't necessarily feel like you deserve to be to there. Be there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you get there and you're just so in awe of the fact that, wow, how did I land here? Or how did I get in this position? Or how did I get this opportunity? How did I get this job? Or how did I get into Stanford? Or how did I get to any place where there's sort of what you call rare air, right? Mm-hmm. You're amongst very few who get these kinds of opportunities. And then you start to question whether or not you're worthy to be there. And and that can hamper people's ability, to DJ's point, to really take in the fact that, okay, I'm here. Let's, let's just absorb everything that's about this organization or about this particular institution so that I can, I can gain everything I can from the, 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 the holistic experience. And some people miss out on that because they're so focused on, wow, I'm just trying to figure out how to prove that I belong here, as opposed to taking in the fact that, hey, I belong here. Now it's just about of sort of absorbing everything that, you know, is a part of the experience. Well, what feels better, if, if, if I understand that definition, is you can have a positive self-image adjustment and still remain humble and free yourself of whatever is sh- shackling being open to the fact that you have arrived and there's things to do uh, around who you're then with. I feel that imposter syndrome, we probably all have that at some point, but how you respond to it can open a door or leave you behind, perhaps. Just thinking forward from what you're saying the definition is. I had an interesting experience. I literally just, um, I was wrapping up a um executive education uh, online virtual program at Harvard Business School um, finished it up today. And one of the professors who um, high level board director with some really, really big corp- companies, one was United Rentals, I mean, six, seven, eight billion dollar organization. Um, and, you know, has served on that board through a lot of uh, sort of crisis as well as prosperous times. And was sharing at the end of the, his comments about being a what he would call a, an introvert director mm-hmm. um, or leader in an organization and how he fits into that mold. And I've been listening to this guy for three days and had no idea. He said, you know, it takes the amount of energy it takes for me to get up here to lecture and have conversations with a group like you all. Like it, it's it's a massive amount of energy for me to to muster up because you know I I, I do, sometimes do have to talk myself into saying whoa I I I'm, I belong in this room. This is a guy who's got you know twenty twenty five thirty years of outstanding business leadership academia all these accolades and yet and still there's this sort of perspective that hmm wow. I've got to present in front of all these people here, and I'm not sure that I'm like super capable of doing that. Um, it, another example, he, he actually used the term imposter syndrome in the conversation as well. And so it's amazing how we tell ourselves these stories about who we are, as opposed to accepting the fact that, look, I'm here. Let's make the most of it and see where we can go. Do you happen to know how he grew up? We all come do, from do not. It was it was childless. literally like pa- passing That's comments really at the end of the point. program today. But you're right. Don't know. Uh, I do know. Um, I do know that he is of Hispanic origin, mm-hmm. and so I don't know if that plays into some of the narrative, right? Maybe, maybe not. Are but it was, it was interesting to me. No, I, I I do think though, whether you have siblings, it matters. What's the household environment like? Sure. Regardless All of whether the cultural All influence might lead you to think I have like or not like this stereotype, I still think, you know, a busted household doesn't care. Uh, a, a parent that's over assertive and perhaps denigrates your character just doesn't love you in some ways that are important through that, you know, adolescent process can have a long lasting effect as somebody that might even create like, am I good enough as 
in the front of the brain when they're standing in front of a bunch of peers who are all well-educated. And you might say, well, do not have any reason to behave that well? He probably does. He might. It'd be interesting to hear the rest of the story of that. Uh, that's a great point. That is a really good point. I agree 100%. So um, when you, you started to chart this course right now, you're kind of done working for companies in a sense. And you're saying, hey, I'm ready to start. Buying my own businesses. Mm -hmm. After he paid back the sixty-five million, <laughs> <laughs> we think we think, we think he did. We're actually paying. Walt created his own fear. Broke the check. We said we're good. <laughs> yes. After that, um, so you're now in this zone. Obviously, you know the profit logic has to make sense when you're seeking out. Did you have to be passionate about the product in the industry too, or not necessarily? Well, I don't know that everybody is, but I do think a lot of good can come from a product. And when you get into the business and see it working with some people who have real needs, either with um, anxiety or with sleep or with pain, uh, and this has been around a long time. It's just in 1937, you know, it was um, prohibited because mm -hmm. people were worried about abuse coming back. But for centuries back to uh, Chinese medicine, Indian medicine, et cetera, there's been medicinal uses. And so there's a lot of help that can come from this. And when you're helping people, you know, if you're not asleep, certainly it, it can trigger passion in a lot of people. And uh, some people go beyond passion and they, they just use that for intoxicative effects. But I think... Um, Part of the thing that's been great to see about this business is not only a sweeping change and a structural system allowing it to come back and be in use, but secondarily, there's a lot of people who have some hope and a lot of people who are referring others because this is a trust relationship too. There's not a lot of research. You can't go to your regular doctor to really understand how it would help you. And they don't have a physician desk reference to say, I'm going to look up that for your particular neuropathy or for your problem being able to stay asleep, here's what you got to do. And so as a result, just naturally, it's going to create a whole swirl of passionate people who are getting involved. And I think that what you see is that's reflected in votes. Like uh, it's second time around here, it's passed, and now it's available to everybody on an adult basis. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a result of passion on a, gra a grassroots basis, in my mind. So, so let's walk back. Um, Copper State Farms, mm -hmm. talk us through... The creation of the business. I know you and Fife, um, mutual friend, yeah. have your owners in the business, your partners. Why weren't you at that dinner with us? I mean, that would have been a great uh, partnership together. Yeah. You know? well, just, now you I need to evaluate now you that. Say that. Now you say that. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, walk us through how that came to be. Well, uh, Fife is the co-founder of Copper State with me. I, I guess we're both a co-chairman of the place and getting bigger, et cetera. But it started from nothing back to getting together. Uh, we were vacationing and having a dinner together. And uh, Oh, that's how it happened. I wasn't invited on the vacation. There well, we I, think, there I, we I, I think there were a lot of people there, and I've got to think around the room. There's a little wine involved, but I, I don't remember if you were in attendance. But, you know, for a long time, he's been doing uh, greenhouse right. agriculture, right. tomatoes, bell peppers, and that kind of thing. And so there was a we had a natural like for each other, and it was time for another chapter to start, and we decided to do it together. But we brought unique backgrounds. You know, I came out of finance and manufacturing, and he comes out of greenhouse agriculture. And it's really the blend of not just growing, but also the processing and the making of a product, the building of the teams, and the rest of what you have to do and these kind of things that uh, I think we had just the right amount at the right time. But, you know, when you're in a business and the wind is in your sails – Instead of in yeah. front of you, mm -hmm. you can make a lot more progress. And uh, it's not like we've worked a particularly great miracle. What we've been in the middle of is, uh, you know, a great miracle of a wave, a green wave of, of this kind of thing coming, both from a legal perspective, an acceptance perspective, uh, and some increasingly better knowledge, you know, coming from studies that are that are being done so that the right aspects of the plant can be applied to the right people at the right time for what they need. I think the formation of Copper State happened to go quickly because of all those factors. And so it started from a super humble beginning. Uh, now it's grown into about 720 people. Uh, and uh, we're the largest uh, wholesaler here. And we're actually maybe in the top handful of largest uh, greenhouse growers in the, in the country. Wow. So um, 
Copper State, from my understanding, has at least five different brands under it. And obviously all doing different things, whether it's edible, seeds, and products. What is the strategy behind having separate brands and not just housing all of those products under one, well, one brand? You know, um, if you go back to how you want to communicate to uh, a person who desires to use the product, they first have to understand, will it work for me? And then do I trust what I'm putting in my body? Mm-hmm. And so I think that what you would want to communicate for women's health, as an example, or what you'd like to communicate for medicinal purposes, is not the same thing as you would for somebody who is not aligned with, I have um, a problem sleeping, and I don't want the psychoactive effects to disturb that, but I'd like to have a complete night's worth of sleep. So for that person to communicate, I think they have to approach a brand that they understand is associated with solving that problem and is delivered to them through a person in whom they have some trust at a fair value that matches whatever they've got in their pocket they're prepared to spend for a solution to that sleep problem. And then you find yourself with a customer. And if that experience is good and the follow-up is there, just as you would with any business, then that brand has caused one more person uh, to become part of what you hope at the end is a high switching cost group of folks who have matched and understand and will also tell others that that brand worked for that purpose, that they trust it, and that it will be that way every single time that they, yeah. that they use it. And so we've divided into brands for particular purposes. And I think that the industry has got so much confusion in it because really what you understand is there's all these crazy names out there for different varieties or strains of the cannabis plant. Yeah. And there's a misunderstanding about whether an invented name is the same at one place versus another. It's right. not. And even though someone uses the same strain and in fact may have started with the same seeds, this is not Monsanto. So not all seeds are the same. And then when you grow it, of course, how you treat it, just like a bottle of wine, you might start with the same grape, but the result is also with the winemaker and how it ends up in the bottle. And did you treat that plant in its most effective form that allows all of the different cannabinoids in that plant to come to their fullest potential and then to be in, depending on how you've processed it and packaged it and delivered it in the right amount of time, is it all working? And so that combination of things together has resulted in the choice, a conscious choice to have separate brands and then to try to reach people in a trusted way and then to be for, be there for them in a follow-up fashion so that we can be consistent and to do this at a price that everybody can afford. Mm-hmm. So we've gone for scale to make it affordable. We've associated with Dr. Tarone Lodog as our chief innovation officer for formulation. She was appointed by President Clinton uh, to be the, on the White House Council for Alternative Medicine. She was also um, on the Advisory Council for the National Institute of Health. And she also taught alternative medicine in the University of uh, Arizona Medical School. And uh, she's formulated these brands, and they're specific for specific things. And we have to make and treat the plants in a consistent fashion and then process them in a way that matches how she envisions that we're going to be able to match based on some science. And there's still some art and some science to all parts of that and end up with something that, uh, that suits and solves the problem. So, Scott, when you started Copper State... You had a completely different landscape relative to state legality. We won't won't think about federal for the moment. But initially, when you got into the business, uh, cannabis was only for medicinal purposes in the state of Arizona. Right. Okay. Now, it's been legalized now Mm -hmm. through voter support. What is the different strategy in terms of go-to-market for Copper State based upon what you were looking at, say, two years ago in how you operated the business model and then how you can operate the business model now? Well, we went into the business uh, having a criminal defense attorney on retainer. (laughs) And it took about (laughs) six months of being in the business and looking over your shoulder and nobody showing up and shutting you down. And we figured out probably we're okay, so we got rid of that guy. Uh, I think a ton has changed. And um, 
as a medical market, Arizona has had about 1% penetration of its available population of those who were able to successfully go get a card. And um, that's a whole different process that now has gone away. But you can still get your card. If uh, the payment of the card is cheaper than the payment of the excise tax, you might continue with your medical card, even if what you wish to do uh, is is to go in and, and, and purchase for a different reason. So I think that how we've approached the market, you know, is the conclusion from a view that now, uh, you know, we're at three and a half percent penetration of the overall population and it's going to go quite higher. Everybody's going to have tried it or will try it at a certain point in time. If they know of somebody in whom they trust their opinion about how it is that it worked for them, was it safe? How did they do it? Who did they talk to? Where did they go? Et cetera. And so what we're thinking about is uh, there's a tremendous amount of increase in volume that's expected as the market goes from, mm, you know, it had been growing at about a 25% per year clip since we've been in the business, maybe 50% in the original part of that to uh, last year, about $700 million in retail sales. And it'll go to two and a half billion, maybe in the next three, four years for Arizona, uh, based on most estimates. That's not our own estimate. Well, that's our estimate too, but it, I think it's a consensus view. Uh, so sure, you you have to you have to get bigger. You have to be able to reach people, and you have to do that and communicate with them through a brand. To 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 your point, DJ, that they can understand. And if you look around, it's confusing. The zoning makes it hard to go into a place. You feel like sometimes you need to have a shower after you've left. They're not great places to walk in. It's hard to talk to them. And sometimes you're dealing with, you know, somebody who's the age of your daughter. I mean, the the average age of a person, if you take a look at the statistics that are published, is still about 42 years old. But you might be dealing with somebody that's 21 Mm -hmm. years old who looks very different and communicates in a language where they have been using the product and know the product, but they you might have a bias when you speak to them, when you're going to ask them, Hey, you know, I, uh, sometimes I want to hang with my friends, but really what I uh, want to deal with is I have anxiety and, you know, you're the age of my daughter and I'm going to tell you about anxiety and I'd like to know what matches with that. Some people have a hard time with that conversation. So what's changed is how to communicate with those folks about what they need and how to educate doctors and patients about where they can go to find what would work for them and that the stigma is not what it was and that it's okay. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about stigma. I mean, my, um, you know, my, my parents are here visiting and my mother, um, has some, um, she has some recurring knee pain problems. And, Mm -hmm. um, um, I shared some edibles with her, um, the other night just to see if that would help her. And she said, wow, that was amazing. Like I had my first good night of sleep in a long, long time. So, you're getting access to populations who never, you know, quite frankly, in, in terms of generation, generation, generationally speaking, have ever tried this, right? They would not necessarily use this as a tool to, for medicinal purposes, to feel better. Uh, but shifting gears just a little bit, um, I think, you know, it'd be fair to say that fragmentation in this market is uh, perhaps maybe even an understatement. Yeah. I know you talked about you know, the ability to scale as part of the strategy. When you look at the marketplace in terms of the various states now that are that are uh, making marijuana legal um, for recreational purposes, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, a, there's a growing footprint there. How much does that attract you in terms of the ability to start to really scale the work that you're doing at Copper State to be able to have massive scale in other locations? I know there's probably a lot of moving parts to all of that. But, and there's also probably, you know, there's another, there's all, all ways of doing that. Obviously acquisition, um, it's probably a little more difficult going to states and getting licenses, but the reality is you have a lot of options in the marketplace right now. Are those things on the radar in terms of ways to scale and grow and build the business? We've had a lot of discussion at the board and have decided that uh, Arizona is big enough uh, for us, and we've divested of assets that are located in other states where we had a license to go start and grow and uh, and begin the whole process of getting bigger. And um, it's hard enough uh, doing it here, where you want to reach everybody where they are. And as I was saying before, you know, there's only a hundred and 
40 ish. Now there'll be some more licenses that are awarded, but there's really only 125 to 135 stores, depending on what you're counting is open. And mm-hmm. there's some things that are in process uh, that are really functioning today. So there's plenty to do here. And there's plenty to do here that are in addition to stores to make products better, to make them more consistent, to make them safer. It's only in the last year that products have been tested in Arizona. So that whole time, while it was a medical market, there was not a testing requirement for that's, products sold in Arizona if you had a card. Wow. So hmm. well, we I know have you a have lot a, to do here. We're I know doing. you have a competitor that was recently, um, I, think a, I think acquired is the right word, I would assume, from what yeah. I understand. On this that's street. right. Um, They're a and, customer of ours. And so what do you think about that acquisition and what does it say for the marketplace when you think of consolidation as being probably a part of the next phase of growth for, for these types of companies? I think uh, the right consolidator will certainly come along and we'll probably have discussions with them at some point down the road. Um, uh, I don't know if you all want to you know talk about the names, but certainly we know that that is uh, one of the largest number of retail licenses is held by that company that was acquired. Yes. And uh, they also had their share of tough uh, leverage and uh, restructure uh, requirements happening on them. And, and frankly, they had a lot more people and they were doing a lot better at some points than others. And recently, I think the result of that acquisition was a solution uh, for many of the problems that they, that they had had. Having said that, they are a good customer, one of our bigger customers. I wish they would pay on time. Uh, they don't always pay on time. Uh, but we supply 70% of, of the national guys that happen to also have stores here in town. We supply 70% of the wholesale market in Arizona. So th- that's huge. So speaking of licensing, the social equity licensing that's happening yeah. uh, here. Two questions for you. One, how do you feel about it? And um, two, is it working as intended? We, well, we talked about this the other day. Yeah, we we did. We had a, <laughs> we had a couple of beverages and got very interested in talking we had a about good it. conversation about and that. And I, 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 it's not working today because it hasn't started yet. You know, mm-hmm. will it work? It's probably way too early to tell. I think the intentions are good, and uh, the rules are still being written on. Um, where the person has to come from, certain neighborhoods to be identified, um, that you have had a conviction for marijuana possession or for drug paraphernalia, but not for other kinds of drugs or for anything else that might Mm -hmm. typically be associated with it, are included in the set of requirements to be able to apply. But Why do you think that is? I've been trying to, since you and I had that conversation, I've been trying to wrap my brain around why that component of the requirement is of value. That's what I'm trying to figure out. You know, helping people that have been in the marijuana area, either as a consumer or on a very small scale, helping a family member or something often resulted in a conviction in Arizona, certainly versus other States had much harsher penalties for a marijuana conviction. I think it's quite high, maybe in the top five States in terms of harshness for penalties or charging. And, um, the effort, the intention, I think, is good to help those folks who were trying mm-hmm. to do well. They have an opportunity to do well now. Probably they could do, depending on the circumstances again and how the rules go and how it all turns out. They can do well economically. But is it making a, a wrong right? And is the way they're writing these rules going to help that wrong turn into a right in an easier or in a better way? And uh, I I, I'm having a hard time understanding how it all comes together, too. So, so in, put it in layman's terms, if I'm a low-level drug dealer and perhaps I've had some skirmishes or incidents with the legal system, this could be a pathway to somehow being legitimate? Is, is that? Am I taking that a bit too far? I think that's one interpretation of it. I, the low, le- you don't have to necessarily have to have been a drug dealer. Correct. Right. I'm just giving an example. Yeah, that's one example. Yeah, but let's yeah. look it at could the, be the analogy to that example is, you know, if you were to sell uh, an eighth of a strain on to someone, you could be arrested for that. Exactly. And now it's approved to go into a store. And now finally it's also tested and you can buy it and you have to file some information with the Department of Health Services. So the analogy continues. So it goes from being able to, sell product in a store now to trying to help somebody 
who would not otherwise have the chance to participate in an area where at least they have a history. <laughs> now, they can't have a really bad history. But sure, from a layman's perspective, can a guy who's been down on his luck and doesn't have the money, there's a poverty level yeah, sure. uh, multiplier, and you have to be below that in your household in order to be eligible. But you can go get financing and you can get people to help you. And if you don't go do those things, which we think is an opportunity for us to help those folks, you're likely going to fail, in which case then you're just going to take this opportunity and it'll end up in somebody else's hands. But is the analogy to a drug trafficker finding a legal loophole to continue what they were doing in the black market, then do it in this market? I guess that's one interpretation, but I think that the intention is not that. I think the intention is that they're no, trying to I don't not at all. Right. I just I find it I just find it ironic, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but at, 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 in this same vein, I think it's acknowledgement, Charles. Part of it is acknowledgement that there have been a lot of folks. No, exactly. Convicted, exactly. That yeah. Thinking about that today, that was probably a little. So I, th I think it's that. Yeah, there are going to be some other interpretations of it as well, but that's how I've seen it. A little class five or class six felony, I, I think, you know, for a possession charge. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I mean, you could perhaps turn this around to where there's a real opportunity here where before you were really looking at something that could be life altering and a less positive way, right? And perhaps this is a way that it turns it around to where there's really a real opportunity to make something out of, you know, a difficult situation. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, if I take a different perspective on it, Copper State has been in the business of trying to empower others who want to mm -hmm. be here because we're a wholesaler. So they need our product. We sell it to most people. We sell it to anybody who will pay their bill on time if they're also properly licensed. And, you know, we're banked and we do it in the right way. So I would say on a micro level, we'd like to do the same thing with these licenses if there's somebody who'd like to come and work with us. Um, and I think, you know, there'll be an approach and an education. And just like at the beginning of this conversation, you talk about what what brings you where you are and how does that reflect how you grew up and how you were educated? How did you network and how did you push the gas down and get back into something that you would enjoy? There's an opportunity to take all that, all of the rough things that have happened to a number of people and to give them a chance to do good with it. And in networking, they could network with us and we can help them. So, um, you know, it'll be a lottery. And so, you know, will this turn out to be something that we can really help people? I, I can't say, um, but we, we're certainly going to look at it more closely. And I think the report card is going to come about a year from now. I think it's super interesting and um, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. So, uh, yeah. Well, you, you mean, you guys are coming at this from a number of different angles and I, I think it's really innovative because there's normal. We talked a little bit about it earlier. Uh, national organization for the reform of marijuana legalization or something. Mm -hmm. Is that, get that mm -hmm. right? So the Arizona chapter of that, you guys are partnering and hosting these free expungement clinics. Right. Right. I mean, that's really interesting. You're putting the consumer at the center of all of this. And I think that's really unique. I was, I did some consulting in this zone back in Oregon. And they're going through what Arizona is going through now. So I kind of saw that whole thing where, yeah, there was this underground thing going on. And if you needed it and wanted it, you can get it. But when it became legal, you had to deal with education. You had to deal with the legal system. You had to deal with all these different things. But very few companies, whether you were a wholesaler, retailer, or otherwise distributor, were taking the angle of literally putting the consumer at the center of it. It was putting the next person in the chain, mm -hmm. right? Or the company in the chain at the center of it. It feels like you guys are really deliberate around that. Do you see that as a huge point of difference for you guys? Well, we think so. And, yeah. and we'd like to have more people understand that we're trying to put the person first. And uh, we try to do that with our own folks. And then for somebody who might have this opportunity expungement seems to be a, a super important thing for them to absolutely you, know, you talked about this imposter syndrome that would apply here too i've got a record how am i ever going yeah, to sure. absolutely mm -hmm. become a business owner and, and do all that so uh, we'd like to help them uh, clean up and get shaped up and yeah and they do come first and if that doesn't work then your 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 primary person who either comes into your store or who in this case might get a license uh, isn't going to function as well so that's our priority 
You know, I think, you know, when we talk about cannabis, marijuana, sort of the elephant in the room is uh, federal legislation. How far away do you think we are from marijuana being legalized federally? federally? Is that is that is that too is that too much of a political (laughs) time bomb that the possibilities for that are just too far off in the distance? Or do you think that there's enough will? And I'm not sure which side is going to be best suited for this. But politically, is that something that is uh, something we can expect to see? I don't know, in the next two years, four years during this this presidential term or not something that you see in the foreseeable future? I, I really can't say. I know that optimism with the change in the administration, uh, federally to the Biden administration, caused a lot of optimism, a lot more money to be invested, and a lot of folks felt that that might come sooner. But I think uh, I don't have this crystal ball. And if you do, Charles, please tell us. I, I, I couldn't say. I definitely don't. I, I can't uh, possibly know that. But uh, every time we get close, and there's been a there's been a lot of bills. You know, we're we're optimistic, so we just maintain a good sense of optimism. And and when that day comes, everybody will get banking. When that day comes, there'll be a lot more people who are comfortable investing. And uh, once you do that, the, the business will become mature. It'll become a great place for those who really want to build a career, uh, even more so than it is today. But it employs a lot of people. But that'll get a heck of a lot better as the business matures, especially, you know, if uh, federal legalization can uh, become a reality. But I have no idea. And in that vein, how much energy do you put into that process? I mean, in terms of advocacy, do you do any of that from the inside or do you just leave that to, you know, those on the outside who are pushing to see that this is something that, we think it's going to be better for the industry and for, for quite frankly, for individuals. Or do you just focus on what you do best in terms of like delivering a really quality product for your customers? Well, we're cognizant and participate with both. Uh, we've, we've invested money with the Marijuana Policy Project, who's running initiatives all the time, including national initiatives. And uh, our in-house counsel, Ryan Hurley, who came from being a name partner in a well-established uh, local law firm, uh, helped write a lot of the language in Proposition 208 and in the previous version that was nearly unsuccessful. So I think that we're quite active, especially locally and to a lesser extent nationally. And, you know, we try to help progress. Um, it's just hard to know when that would finally take shape. There's a lot of states now that have it. It's 30 some odd states. I haven't kept track after the last uh, sets of initiatives have been successful. But uh, that's a heck of a lot more than it was when we started. Yeah, and this is obviously it's a massive industry that's that's growing before our eyes, right? Um, literally in the last what let's say the last five to ten years, in terms of really being able to see companies and organizations that scale it to be able to really produce and be in the marketplace uh, in a, in a really big way. When I think about that, given the work that I do, I think about employment. And do you see the industry being a place where there's opportunity for young people who really want to go into a a new space and be a part of innovation and disruption and learn a a, a real function that's going to be valued in that particular um, landscape of work. Do you see that as being an area of opportunity, a lot of opportunity for people who are, you know, even whether it's functionally or whether it's focused on a particular skill that's best suited for this industry? Well, I I think it's an opportunity for both old folks and and younger folks. Um, Just based on our own experiences, we've got people that have been retired who decided that they want to come out of retirement and work in a cannabis uh, environment because they have an interest in something that can help them. Because if they're a little bit older, they might be dealing with something Mm -hmm. that uh, makes them want to seek out some other type of remedy. So we've got folks that have been retired for two, three, four years that are in their 60s that are great employees. And then we've got folks who are an average age in a store might be quite young. It's a. It's been a terrific blend, and not necessarily uh, headed to a profile of somebody who's an ideal store employee. And I yeah. think you find the passion, the experience, and the education together, regardless of age or gender. And we like that a lot. But you're also dealing with science. You're farming. I mean, cultivation. I mean, there's so many skills that really 
And I'm not sure what colleges are doing to produce the kind of graduates that you need or that you look for, but it seems like there'd be areas of expertise and specialty that would really be suitable for the work that you do in your business. Well, that's true. But if, you know, you take a look at federal funding, um, federal funding is not going to some of those places where uh, it's still schedule one substance. And I think some kinds of research are still prohibited unless it's within a federal program, either sponsored by the NAH or some other specific grant money. So PTSD and the Veterans Administration might be an example, mm-hmm. but you're not going to find a cop, you know, get ready for a pot, career in pot as a program or a major <laughs> issue or U of A. Not happening uh, yet, although maybe someday we can all hope. Have you two been in a pot store? Either yeah, yes. I've done, done my research. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And you been tried out the product or not? Done my research. <laughs> okay. uh, leave that where it is. Yeah. <laughs> I so I went up to uh, Harvest, not trying to advertise for anybody, but that's that's where I. Uh, that's where you go. Have been, and of course I have been. Sorry, have two of your retail facility, of course. Yeah, I hope everybody can uh, go see Silflower at some yeah. point. But I think the environment is, you know, different in each of these places. So to each his own. It, it is very, very much so from what I understand. So um, you were track and field legend. I'm going to use the word legend. <laughs> got to stop <laughs> saying that. It doesn't fit. Another, another imposter center is just and, and, going on. And one thing I know about, you know, sub four minute milers is that they uh, – when they're running, they're thinking, and you're obviously a thinker. So, are you still running? Do you still run? No, my my knees have given out. Okay, so when you're sitting down, <laughs> there goes my there goes my question. There's your theory. Yeah, when, you're, when you're sitting down, let's go your back knees. to your research. You were talking about a minute ago. <laughs> my question to you is: you you've obviously accomplished a lot. Um, if someone walked up to you and tapped you on the back and said, "Hey," We're going to put you in the Hall of Fame. What would it be for? I'd say being a good person to my family and maintaining a humble approach to life. That's awesome. Yeah. You pride yourself on that. That's awesome. Yeah. That is great. I mean, after everything you've done and said, we've talked so little about that. That's awesome. I don't, I don't, yeah, I want to talk about all that. What I want to talk about is is you guys right now and having a good attitude about we're, we're, what's happening next. Yes. But, but, but I think Including your research, which but, but, we can talk about a little more. <laughs> Time's almost up, so we can talk oh, about that. Shoot. We, right. no, we can talk about it after. Yeah, but, some other time. But, but no, you know why it's important, Scott, is because we, we believe, Charles and I both talk a lot about having purpose. And it's not just individual purpose, but purpose that impacts the community, whether that's your family friends, marginalized folks, whatever it might be, might be. So I think, I think that needs to be acknowledged that said and done at the end of the day, that's what's really important to you. And I think if more leaders felt that way, we'd probably be operating in a different marketplace. Mm. So I think that does, we don't need to spend a ton of time talking about it, but I do think you having the opportunity to articulate that is important. Well, and then one thing I would add on to that is um, just in my experience over the time of our friendship, that's exactly who I see on a regular basis. Yeah. So um, I think that fits really well. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Question? I know you're going to go there, right? No, go, go. You got it. No. <laughs> Where? <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we normally, so, no, we, have a, we have a little cadence. We have a cadence here sometimes. And DJ is normally the person who says, do you have any questions for us? And uh, I was just. So what happened just a second ago? Yeah, I, I, I did that. Okay, so I, I, I took your thunder just then. But, um, so, DJ, what's the best thing that came out of your research? Actually, one of our guests. Um uh, yeah, that ended up being on the show because one of the questions I had, she ended up doing some other things. That wasn't her sole uh, job. She's also very much into self-awareness and healing. Hmm. And um, she ended up being on the show, but I met her through that experience. So to answer that question, probably not the as he was looking for, but that is the real answer. It wasn't my first time. I'd been, here's what I'd say. 
it's come it's come a long way. Retail's come a long way. And I know there's probably a long way to go. But I remember being in Oregon, I think probably one of the first states to make this transition. It was bad. Um, education was tough. You know, your consumers knew more than the bud tenders. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. if you didn't know exactly what you wanted, it was a really tough experience. Not a good experience. Right. Yep. It feels like it's come a long way. And again, I'm sure there's a long way to go. So that's the first thing I thought when I did my research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else? No, I appreciate today. It's been Thank a you. real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks. I feel the same. Thank you for joining us. And check us out on tcvpodcast.com.